All right, if you've got your Bible, you can turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, I'm in the CSB, so if you've got your Version Bible app, you can uh, follow along word for word. Um, if not, we've provided you an outline. It'll be on the screen um, or in your own copy of the Scriptures, 2 Peter chapter 1. Last week, we finally started 2 Peter. Um, we've been in this Foreigner series since the beginning of the year, and so it took us up till last week to get through um, all of 1 Peter, and so we're finally in 2 Peter and going to be closing it out through the summer, and so I'm looking forward to um, finalizing this. Um, but last week, as we kicked off chapter 1, we began with the first four verses, and so as a reminder, Peter wrote this letter um, in 2 Peter to the same group of churches and the same group of Christians who he had written to in 1 Peter. And so it's to the same group. And we, we learn, you know, I'm not going to go through all of that, but you can go on our website to newpassionchurch.com to the sermons page. And there are, uh, I think, 21 sermons there to give you the back and the history of those churches, the persecution they faced, all of the difficulties that they were dealing with. And so he writes this to them, and he knows that his life um, uh, is going to end soon. I don't know if he knew that, but he was in a situation where um, this ends up being essentially a farewell address. And so these are the things that he writes to these Christians, but also um, to us, those who would follow after these Christians, um, the truth and the instructions that he felt was most important to them, especially in this series. And so as we talked about last week, throughout this letter, you're going to see a couple of themes from Peter. First, he challenges um, the Christians to continue to grow in their relationship with Jesus, to grow in their faith. But he also challenges the teachers, um, the corrupt teachers, for their false teaching, um, their inappropriate lifestyles um, that, that they're trying to influence these Christians with, that they're trying to justify for them. And so we ended last week's message with this passage of Scripture, and we're going to start there today just to kind of get caught up in context. But 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 says this, His divine power, talking about God, has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. By these, He has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption <clears throat> that is in the world because of evil desire." I told you last week as we closed out the message that God gifts us with every resource necessary to live a godly life. That's what last week was about, and that's what this week is about. That, that we are called to live godly lives, and He has resourced us. He has given us everything that we need to do that. He, he hasn't um, called us to something He hasn't equipped us for, and He hasn't called us to something and just kind of left us to it on our own, but He equips us, He empowers us, He enables us to live this godly life. That's why he has saved sinners. He saved sinners for his own glory, but he also saves us and redeems us so that we can live that godly life, so that we can live the life that he um, ha has called us to, that he made us for. In fact, that's what we see in Ephesians chapter 2, that he saves us through faith, by grace. It's, it's all of him saving us, but then he made us a new creation. We are his workmanship. Why? To do the good works that he created us for long ago. So part of our redemption and salvation is about living this life of godliness, 
holiness that he created us to live. And so in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, he says this, for this very reason, for this very reason, that's the whole purpose in what he's about to write in just a moment. For the very reason, for this very reason, what reason? What he just talked about in the first four uh, verses, that he has, um, that he wants us to live a godly life and to escape the world's um, evil corruption. And, and so now he's giving us these instructions because that's what he desires for us, because he wants you to live a godly life, because he wants you to escape the corruption of the evil world. This is what he is now calling us to. So look at verse, the second part of verse five, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. <laughs> that sounds like a lot. That sounds a lot uh, like a lot of things that we need to really be focused in on when it comes to living a godly life. You can write this down. Faith is just the starting point to living a godly life. Faith is just the starting point to living a godly life. I wonder, is there anyone besides myself that's made a stupid decision in life? Thank you. One person, Phil. Two, three. Okay, y'all are the honest ones. Everybody else are liars. Um, so you make stupid decisions and then you lie about it. Um, well, when uh, Gavin was almost born, um, Nikki and I had always kind of decided that when we have children, that uh, in their early years, she was going to kind of stay home with them, raise them. Um, and, and I uh, attribute their, uh, you know, doing really well in school and things like that to her having that, those early years and days to be able to teach them and raise them. And she did such a great job. But in my mind, as a young, immature, you know, man who wants to provide for my family and and we've got these goals, I feel like and think that I need to um, quit my good job um, to get a different job in order to make up both of our incomes because we, we didn't go without. We had two, both of us were working. Um, we, we made good money. We weren't extremely wealthy, but we made what we needed to, to survive. And so when uh, a few months before she had Gavin, I decided to quit my good job and to go sell Aflac. They were hiring. Y'all remember Aflac with the duck? He, it's still around. And, and little did I know that they were always hiring for sales reps with Aflac because they were all independent agents. And so they're always hiring because they're not hiring them. Um, you're independent contractor. Um, they're always recruiting people to give up their jobs and to go think that they can make a better living um, selling Aflac insurance. And so they didn't tell me that they were always hiring and that they were always hiring people to sell in the same area, the same product at the same time. And so um, people would literally laugh at me when I came in because they said people co come in multiple times a week, different people trying to sell them Aflac. And so about that time, I knew I was in trouble. And, and so anyway, I made the decision. I had to uh, follow through with it until I, I think, you know, it got so bad. I think I sold vacuums for a week, um, you know, all kinds of stuff. But, but anyway, um, I made a stupid decision. But Aflac, many of you know it. Maybe you don't know what the product is. 
is, but it is supplemental insurance. So it's not designed to replace your health insurance or your life insurance. Supplemental insurance is designed to add to the insurance that you already have. So you might work at a place, you might be in the military or something like that and be provided um, some kind of health benefits, some kind of life insurance. Maybe you get it through a, a, a provider yourself, but supplemental will provide you additional benefits that your um, insurance does not provide you. It's something you add on to, you don't replace it with. And so here, um, we're called to supplement our faith. Um, Peter says to make every effort to supplement your faith. Well, first of all, make every effort means every effort. It doesn't mean to make an effort when you feel like it, when you agree with someone or disagree with them and change that effort. Um, every effort is every effort. It means we make every effort when it's favorable and comfortable, as well as when it's unfavorable and it's uncomfortable. He says make every effort to supplement your faith with certain things. So to supplement our faith is to, um, like the insurance, is to add to it. It doesn't replace our faith. It doesn't um, change our faith. It adds to our faith. Now, faith in Christ alone is all that you need for salvation. That's the baseline. That's the foundation. All you need for salvation is faith in the finished work of Jesus and what he did on the cross, his resurrection. It, it's faith that saves us, but we're not called to stay at faith. We're not called to just have faith in Jesus and then have salvation and then that be it. We're, we're not called to that. What he calls us to is to supplement our faith, to start with the foundation and then build upon it. To start with the foundation of our new life in Christ and our salvation and then to build upon that. In fact, Peter tells Christians um, that really they have a responsibility to add qualities to their faith. And I want us to go through them one by one. You can fill in the blanks as we go along. The first one is this, goodness. He tells us to build upon our faith with goodness. We're going to start with faith. That's the foundation. That's the baseline. And then from that faith in Jesus, that new life in Christ, as a, maybe a, a, an immature new uh, Christian, I want you to now build on that faith with goodness. Some of your uh, versions of the Bible might use the word virtue. Well, when you look up the original word for goodness or virtue, it means moral excellence. It means modesty and purity. And so here, Peter um, is calling the Christians, he's calling these Christians, you know, 2,000 years ago, as well as every one of us who follows, because these truths are transferable, to have virtue. To, to have goodness. And this is a moral excellence. He, he's calling us to modesty and to purity. Why? Because he will reference the depraved lifestyle of these teachers in chapter 2 who are trying to influence the Christians. He, he's going to reference um, the, the way that they live their lives and how um, it is ungodly, essentially, and how it is not a life of purity. It's not a life of modesty. And, and so here, Peter calls Christians to a godly lifestyle by avoiding the corrupt behaviors of the world, unlike these other teachers, but by adding virtue to their faith. So he wants us to start with faith, but then he wants us to add to it uh, virtue. Now, that virtue doesn't like make you any more saved. Faith saves you, but it does build upon your life 
towards that godliness that he calls us to. So Christians are to have moral excellence, living pure and modest lives. I wonder in your own life, what are you doing as an individual? What are you doing as a Christian to um, seek moral excellence? In what ways are you seeking moral excellence? In what ways are you seeking modesty? In what ways are you seeking purity in your life, in your faith, in the way that you live your faith? Uh, with all the scandals and all the things, because you know um, the, the media and you know people of the world are going to highlight those things, that they're going to point, they're going to point to the, the, the scandals, they're going to point to all of the, the issues when it comes to Christians and professing Christians and the denominations um, with, with the various different churches. And so there's a lot of that out there. I mean, we can't ignore that. We, we know it's out there because people are messy, and, and people make up those churches and those denominations. People are the ones who are professing Christians. And so there's going to be professing Christians who are Christians, and they take their eyes off of Jesus, and they're not building upon their faith with goodness and virtue. And so they're going to make decisions that are not pure and modest. They're not um, holy in, uh, at their foundation. So, so there are going to be those people who fall and who make sinful decisions. But then there are going to be people who are professing Christians who aren't followers of Jesus. They're not Christians. They have an idea. We talked about this last week a little bit. They have an idea. They know all the right answers. Maybe they've grown up in church. Maybe someone told them they were Christians, but they're not truly Christians. And yet they go around and they tell people they're Christians, but then they live lives that are not pure and not modest. And the world points to them and goes, what about them? What, 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 what about these people? And, and then we see all the chaos and the division among um, uh, denominations, and we see um, abuse, and we see these things that have taken place and that happen because the people make up those denominations. And then we can look and we can go, you know, what's going on? But the world does so even more than the church. And so the world needs to see a group of people who are committed to virtue, who are committed to goodness who are committed to modesty and purity, who, who don't give in to every whim and who don't give in to every temptation, but who um, choose to live a life of purity. The, the world needs to see that. The, the world needs to see that there's something genuine about our faith. When we say that we're a new creation in Christ, that we are a new creation in Christ, it does not mean we're not going to sin, and it doesn't mean that we're going to not, not fall, but there's certain sins and there's certain ways that people have fallen that, yes, every one of us can avoid. Every one of us can, can, can refrain from. I, I would be very careful, and I, and I understand what people are saying when they, they look at someone who has maybe severely abused another and goes, you know, without the grace of God, that could be me. And yes, without the grace of God, it could be every one of us. But every one of us who walk with Christ and have the Holy Spirit in us um, can avoid those things. It's not just making one bad decision. It's making a decision to live a life that completely opposes God's word. Like, like you do not have to make that decision because that is a, a, a very horrible decision. It's not like, you know, slipping up and saying something you shouldn't say. And it, it, that, that's an intentional sin. That's, those are intentional things that just are the total opposite of God's word. And so we have to be very careful that we live pure and modest lives, that we, we live above board, uh, above reproach, as 
The scripture tells us even for elders and pastors. So then he says, I want you to build on faith with goodness, but then also knowledge. And this is a different knowledge than last week's knowledge that we were talking about. That knowledge was a precise and a certain knowledge of God and his truth. It it was an intimately knowing him in, in, in a very intimate way, uh, an assured knowledge of him, an assured um, association with him. Well, this is more talking about our faith. It's gnosis. This knowledge is both a basic understanding of Christian faith, so, so it has dual meaning. So, so it's saying like, hey, if you're a new Christian, if you're new to the faith, if you have started with simply the basic faith in Jesus for salvation, and that's where you're at, I hope you've not just stayed there for 10 years. Maybe you made a profession of faith 10 years ago, and, and that's still where you're at. But, but he calls us to a knowledge of understanding Christianity. How do we live with goodness? How do we build on our faith with goodness and virtue? We have to understand the Christian faith. So, so that's understanding the basic things, but it also means to have a deepening, enlarging, and more perfect knowledge of the faith. It's moral wisdom, which helps guide how we live our lives. And so what Peter is telling us to do is to build on our faith with goodness, but then also knowledge from the basic knowledge of Christian, Christianity and following after Jesus to a deepening knowledge that is enlarging and it's growing. It's moral wisdom that helps us know exactly how God wants us to live our lives. We don't have to abuse. We don't have to, um, we don't have to give in to um, impurity. We don't have to give in to sexual temptation. We don't have to give in to those things because we know what God's Word tells us to. We have the Holy Spirit who's guiding us and directing us, so we don't have to give in to those things because we have a knowledge of what God desires for us. So I wonder, Christian, in what ways are you actively growing from basic knowledge of God and of your Christian faith into a deepening, um, perfecting, understanding knowledge and uh, and knowledge of Him, A, a growing knowledge, an enlarging knowledge. In what ways are you pursuing that knowledge? In what ways are you growing? In what ways are you devoting yourself to God's Word and to to receiving His Word from those who are teaching or in in community groups or in podcasts or through books or whatever? In what ways are you growing outside of church in your knowledge and your understanding of God and His Word and the truth that He gives to us? In what ways are you um, enhancing in this way? Because we're called to continually learn we, we, we learn from God's Word, we apply His Word, and that's how we grow. And so we're continually to learn, apply, and grow. And then he says to build on knowledge with self-control. Self-control is the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions, especially in sensual appetites. Now, every one of us lacks self-control in some ways, you know, um, it, it might look different. The, the reason you lose control or you lack self-control might look different from person to person. We all um, lack self-control in some ways. In fact, Peter tells us, or Paul tells us in Galatians, that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So, so obviously, it's a natural, uh, because we're sinful people, because we fail and we sin and we have a sin nature, um, and, and we have flesh that even when we're saved that we have to battle— So self-control obviously is one of those common struggles 
for people who uh, deal with and live in a fallen world. And so he tells us that it is a fruit of the Spirit. So if we want to live with self-control and we want to be able to control those desires and control giving in to those sinful appetites and those type things, then we need to have the help of the Holy Spirit to do that. It's not going to come easy. It's not going to come naturally. It's something we have to yield to the power of the Holy Spirit in order to have self-control. But to have moral excellence, to, to have that goodness, that virtue, we're also going to have to have self-control. We're, we're living in a world that uh, wants you to just give in to every passion, to every desire, to every whim of every temptation. They, they, they justify it. They tell you to just do essentially what pleases you. Now, we've heard for years, you know, if it feels good, do it. I mean, those words are really never been said, but it's the theme, it's the ideology of if it feels right, if it feels good to you, just do it. But that's on steroids today. We live in a culture that um, is glorifying those things. We're, we're in a month that is celebrating how people choose to have sex. And, and I'm sorry, and, and look, everybody's welcome here, and we've said this multiple times, everyone's loved here. But, but we have to speak truth where truth has to be spoken. And you'll see in just a moment, even the, the ideology of love is love is a lie. There's multiple different meanings of love. But what they're saying is, is whatever you have a desire for and whatever you feel, whatever you have an emotion for, just pursue it. Just chase after it. And where there is a world who is looking for virtuous Christians, virtuous people who will live by purity and live by modesty. We have even followers of Jesus who buy into this ideology and who are walking according to the desires of their flesh rather than by the um, power and the direction of the Holy Spirit, rather than the truth of God's Word. We need, as followers of Jesus, to have self-control. And we can only have self-control when we give ourselves over and we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit. If we as people, as, if we as Christians are going to have moral excellence, we must have self-control. And the only way we'll have self-control is through the help of the Holy Spirit. Then he says endurance, that is patience. Um, that is being steadfast or constancy. Another thing we need in this culture among Christians is constancy. Constancy is the ability to be faithful and dependable. Man, you ask business owners if we have constancy in this generation right now, and they'll tell you in a heartbeat, absolutely not. I was talking to an electrician who does a lot of our work around here when we need a professional electrician. And when, he, when we first moved into this building in 2019, this auditorium had to have some rewiring done, some electrical work done, and things like that for the updates that had to be done in here. And he, at that time, he said he had 12 crew members, and, and they were doing a, a, a very healthy um, financial number in revenue every month. I saw him uh, on uh, at some point this week, it was like Thursday, and he, and he looked tired. He looked wore out. And I asked him how he was doing because I, I, I know him kind of personally as well, not just uh, from a business sense. And I asked him how he was doing, and he's like, things could be better. He said, when we wired your building before and when we were doing work in here before, he said, I had 12 crew members. He said, I can't find anyone to work. He said, it's down to him and his 
uncle, and they're about 10% of the revenue they were bringing in before because they just can't find people to work. Why? Because there's no dependency. There's no faithfulness. There's no faithfulness in the world, and yet we see the same thing in church. People make commitments. People make, uh, you know, um, say they're going to do things, say they're going to be places, and yet we see that there is a lack of um, uh, constancy, the ability to be faithful and dependable. It also is enduring and perseverance. Now, now this isn't just talking about in our commitments in relationships and to one another. It's also talking about in our difficulties in life. See, once again, you got to remember these Christians were being persecuted. They were being crucified. They were being burned alive. They were being torn apart in the Colosseums. And so this endurance might look different than our endurance. This patience might look different than our patience. Because in, the, in this moment, not only do they have religious teachers trying to tell them just to follow the whims of their sinful desires and, and what their, their heart tells them to do, but now they also have a, a government who's wanting to crucify them, who's wanting to tear them apart. And so not only is he calling them, calling them to things like moral excellence and self-control, but he's also calling them to patience so that when they face persecution and when they face difficulty, they can stand firm and they can be dependable in their faith. They can stay dependable in their commitment to God. This is a man who isn't swayed from his purpose and remains loyal and faithful and reverent even in the greatest trials and sufferings. How many people have faced trials and difficulties and sufferings and gave up and got mad at God because life wasn't their way, because the life didn't turn out the way that they wanted it to turn out, and so they throw their hands up and they get upset at God? I've seen many people do it, especially in their relationships. I've seen many people lose their dependency and their faithfulness to God and their reverence to God because they had a couple of divorces, because um, maybe a couple of ladies... Um, or a couple of wives left them, or a couple of husbands, or cheated on them, or whatever that might be. And so they decided, and, and, and in their heart, they hardened towards God. They got upset with God, and their dependency changed, their faithfulness changed, their reverence changed, because life didn't turn out the way they wanted it to. And here Peter is telling us, and calling us as Christians, and calling these Christians to have endurance. Start with faith, build on that faith with goodness, build on that goodness with knowledge, build on that knowledge with self-control, and build on that self-control with endurance, to endure the hard times, to endure the temptations, to, en to endure the difficulties. James says that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. A man who has endurance, a woman who has endurance is a single-minded man or a single-minded woman unwavering in all of their ways. See, if we want to be steadfast, if we want to be constant, if we want to be dependable, then we must have endurance and we must be of single mind and that is committed to Christ. And then he says to build on that with godliness. This is a reverence and respect towards God. This is having reverence towards Him, not, not taking everything lightly, not... not um, uh, disrespecting him or even um, mistreating him or the, the truths that he gives us in God's word, but it's applying it to our lives for that godly lifestyle. And then he says, brotherly affection. This is the love between Christian brothers and sisters. It, it, it comes from one of those um, three words of love. So you have phileo, you have agape, and then you have 
um, eros. Eros is the love that is erotic. It is a romantic type love. So, so we can't say that love is love because even in scripture, we don't see that. You don't eros a hamburger. You don't romantically love a, a, a hamburger. In fact, I don't even think you love a hamburger. You might say you love a hamburger. You like a hamburger, but you don't even have brotherly affection towards a hamburger. And so we use these terms and we muddy them and we mix them up. But there are three different words that we see in scripture when it comes to love. And he tells us in the first one, this phileo it is the love between Christian brothers and sisters. It's friendship. It's a deepening friendship. It's holding friends dear and close. And so that's what we're called to as Christians, to love one another. Well, Peter here starts with this phileo, this, this kind of mutual love. This, it's almost like a surface level love, but it's still a deep affection for one another. It's, a, it's an intimacy with one another. But then he says, I want you to build on your faith with brotherly love, but on brotherly love, he then says, I want you, or brotherly affection, I then want you to build on that with love. So what's the difference between brotherly affection and love? Well, in some versions, you might have the word charity. That word is representing the agape type love. This is the incomparable, immeasurable, unconditional, sacrificial, and perfect love of God for humanity. It is the highest love. So what he's telling us as followers of Jesus is, I want you to start with brotherly affection. I want you to start as you build on your faith to have an affection towards your Christian brothers and sisters. But I want that to deepen, and I want that to grow with the highest goal being the Christ-like love that he has for humanity. The sacrificial love, the unwavering love, the covenantal love, not the circumstantial love, not the circumstantial affection, but the kind of love that is unwavering, it is unending, it is unbreakable. So he, 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 it's almost progressive. I want you to start with affection, but I want you to love one another in an unbreakable way. I want you to love one another as Christ loves the church. And so we don't stop at a surface level love. We aim for a deeper love. See, that's why he's calling Christians to grow. That's why this is a call to continual growth. Because we don't just get saved and then we're just like Jesus. Our maturing, our being like Jesus is a process. It builds upon one another. And as we learn and as we apply, we grow. So he says, I want you to start with faith because faith is the baseline. It is the foundation. That is your salvation. That's your new life in Christ. But when you have a baby and you have that new life, you don't just like leave it. You don't just say, okay, we had a baby. Good to go. No. You feed it, you nurture it, you, you, you do what you are supposed to do as parents to what? Help it grow, to be healthy, to, be, um, to, to nurture it, to take care of it, to be strong and healthy. It's the same way with our Christian life. He gives us new life. We're babes in Christ. He doesn't just leave us and say, good luck. He calls us to grow, to add to that faith, and to build upon that faith with these godly qualities and characteristics. Then he goes on in verse 8 and 9, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. You can write this down. Christians who grow in godly character are useful and fruitful. Christians who grow in godly character are useful and fruitful. See, Peter calls us beyond just possessing faith to continually building on it. Um, You can own a, a piece of property and you can put a concrete slab there and you can even get tax benefits from that and say that's kind of your home. That's your, your homestead. That, I mean, you could put a trailer on top of the, the, um, the, the concrete slab, whatever. You're going to get the same benefits as someone who has a full-on home. But that's not a real home. That, that's not a complete home. You've got property. You've got a concrete slab. But what's the purpose of the concrete slab? It's to build a house on. It's to build up. It's to add to. You, put, you, you frame it up. You put walls you put a roof, you put furniture inside. The whole point of the concrete slab and the property is so you can build a home on it. In the same way, we have been given this faith, as we were uh, talking about last week, as a divine distribution. We've been given this measure of faith, not just to have faith and not just to have salvation, but that we might build upon it for a godly life. Faith is the concrete slab. It is the starting point of this new life that we've been given. And so he tells us here, if we don't increase in these qualities and characteristics, we're useless and unfruitful to God. Think about that. Are you useless and fruitless to God? If you look at your Christian life, If you look at how you're living this new life, this faith that's been given to you because of the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, all that he did, the perfect life he lived on your behalf, so that you might have this faith and you might have this new life. If you look at your life and how you live it from day to day, from week to week, from month to month, from the moment you got saved to this moment now, whether that be a day or whether it be 50 years, If you looked at the scope of your life, would you say that you are useful to God and that your life has been fruitful? Or would you have to look at it and go, my life has been useless and it's been unfruitful? Now, that's not to condemn you. But but the reason we look to God's word is to get the truth so that we might apply it, so that we might grow. So whether you've wasted the last 50 years of your Christian life or whether you're just starting out afresh and anew, every one of us can be assured now because of the truth of God's word that he does not expect you just to have faith in Christ and to stay there. But he wants you to build upon that faith and he wants you to build upon that that starting point so that you might live a life that is godly, that is honoring to him. Because he doesn't want us to be useless. He doesn't want us to be unfruitful. He tells us that if we have become useless and unfruitful, if we're not growing in these qualities, that we have become blind, short-sighted, and forgetful. What have we become blind and short-sighted and forgetful about? About the very benefits of what Christ has given us through his finished work on the cross. Like we have forgotten how wicked of sinners that we were and what it required for us to have this new life, to have this salvation, to have this hope, this eternal glory that is promised to us well beyond this life. He says, if if you're not growing, 
If you're not building on your faith, you're blind. You're short-sighted. You're forgetful. Today, are you blind, short-sighted, and forgetful? Maybe today, this is where you start. Maybe today, this is the, the point where when we close in just a few minutes, I've got one more passage of scripture and one more point, but as we, as we close, like, like this, is, this is your starting point. God, I don't want to be useless anymore. I don't want to be unfruitful. Help take the blinders off. Help me to remember where I was, who I was, how I lived my life before, I found, before you found me before you saved me, before you gave me faith, before I was redeemed, before I had this new life. Help me to remember. Because if I remember and if I know what you've done for me, then nothing is that high of a price. In fact, the the burden he gives to us is light and it is easy. Now we know life is not easy and we know suffering is not easy and we know things are not easy, but he says compared to our burden compared to doing life on your own, compared to doing it in your own power, compared to not having self-control and having to pay the consequences of that and walking in the consequences of your sin. He says, my burden is light, but my burden is easy. And so maybe that's your starting point. The final two verses says this, therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly provided for you. I could preach a whole sermon out of that, but I don't have time. And so you can write this down. The true Christian will experience the Holy Spirit's work. You know, one of the greatest ways you can confirm your calling and election, your salvation, your your new life in Christ— the, the, the greatest way is you can look for the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Some, some of the people who struggle the most with legalism and, and, and their salvation often put the weight of their salvation on themselves. And they'll talk about their struggles and they'll talk about the difficulties of, of walking with Christ. And every time the thing that I point to them is this, a lost person, a dead person in their sin, isn't caring about the sin that kills them and keeps them in the grave. They don't care about them, those things. One of the evidences of the Holy Spirit is you can sense his work and his power in your life. The things that you once desire, you now you might still struggle with, but you don't fully desire them anymore. The things you used to do without any conviction, now when you do it, you feel convicted. The things that you used to do without any thought, now like all of a sudden it burdens you and it bothers you and it makes you, maybe you deal with that guilt or you deal with that conviction. Now there's something telling you, hey, this isn't right. This isn't, this is wrong. This isn't godliness. And so a true Christian experiences the work of the Holy Spirit. And I close with this quote from Matthew Henry, because there'll always be moments where we doubt our salvation, but we must yield to the Spirit to help us live the life He has saved us for. Matthew Henry says this, it requires a great deal of diligence and labor to make sure our calling and election. Therefore, must be a very close examination. There must be a very close examination of ourselves, a very narrow search and strict inquiry. 
whether we're thoroughly converted, our minds enlightened, our wills renewed, and our whole souls changed. So what he's saying is, have I thoroughly been converted? Has my mind been enlightened to who Jesus is, uh, to the gospel? Has my will been renewed? Do do I will new things? Do I desire new things? Um, uh, Has my soul been changed? To come to a fixed certainty in this requires the utmost diligence and cannot be attained and kept without divine assistance. By this, you will be kept from falling and that at all times and seasons, even in those hours of temptation on the earth, when others shall fall into heinous and scandalous sin, those who are thus diligent will be able to walk circumspectly and keep on in the way of their duty. And when many fall into errors, they shall be preserved, sound in the faith, and stand perfect and complete in the will of God. One of the ways that you will have these qualities and characteristics is only by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as you yield yourself to Him, and as you give yourself over to Him, day after day, you will persevere, you will be able to stand, you will be able to have moral excellence when those temptations come that make others fall because they've taken their eyes off of Christ and they're not yielding themselves to the Spirit. Uh, As Matthew Henry says, you will be able to diligently stand and not fall. And so for every one of us, we have been given faith, but it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we build on that faith the things that will lead us to live a godly life. As we pray, what is it that God's saying to you today in his word? Are you growing in moral excellence? Are you growing in your knowledge? Or maybe today is a day of repentance. Maybe today is an acknowledgement that I've become useless and fruitless. I've been blind to what Christ has done to me. Whatever it is, whatever he's saying to you, whatever truth he's calling you to, as I pray, I'm going to call you to respond. Have a conversation with God. Repent if you need to repent. Commit to a greater growing in your faith if you need to commit. Whatever it is, let's have that conversation now. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter from Peter to a group of Christians who were pulled on both sides. They were being tempted by um, their own uh, spiritual teachers who were corrupt, and yet they were being persecuted and facing suffering from the governmental leaders that they had to live with and that they had to answer to. And so, God, there's so much here that we can learn from, and there's so much here that we can apply to our lives. Lord, we live in a culture that is growing darker and more wicked, or at least revealing that darkness and, and that, that wickedness more and more. And so, Father, we're going to face things, I believe, in the future that we have yet to face as followers of Jesus and as the church. And so, Lord, I ask that today we would be committed to what we have learned in the truth of your word and that we would not stay shallow in our faith because I believe, Father, if we stay shallow in our faith, we will get knocked down. We will fall. We will not be able to endure. So, Father, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to obey your word to heed its warning, to yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit so that we might build on that faith these godly characteristics and qualities that Peter has written to us. 
If there's an area that we've been struggling in, help us to, 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 to yield ourselves in that area, to admit it and to ask for your help in that way. Help us as a church, but also as individual followers of Jesus to not be useless and not be fruitless, but to be obedient and to walk in obedience no matter what it costs us, that we would stand firm and we would be constant no matter the cost. So Lord, speak to hearts in this moment. May your spirit draw us to, to himself and open our eyes to the areas that we need to um, respond in. We love you. We thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.